0: Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. All right, guys. In this little thing we call democracy, we have this other thing called citizen power. We just need to know how to use it, to be perfectly honest. A little TBH. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you are seriously not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. So when you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Makes sense, right? So we have the thing for you to make this magic happen. And that is Citizen Power with our friends Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan. And it is their 10-day course that offers civics education that you missed, or or you might've forgotten from high school. You know, you might've been skipping class. You might've been eating Chipotle. I mean, that's what I was doing. So we get it. And this 10-day course is free for the first five days. So before we get into that, let's just get into like what this course is gonna give you. And it's not about the facts, not about the dates. This isn't just like a memorization game, which don't get me wrong, like everyone loves a good Jeopardy moment, but that's not what this is about. So, giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. So by taking this course, you'll learn what you should be taught in a civics class, but honestly isn't. So your rights and your powers as a citizen, which sounds pretty basic, but a lot of us don't know them. How you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and honestly, the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. So there are a lot of takeaways that are a part of this course and they honestly make you the CEO of your elected officials, which you are, by the way, FYI, in case you missed it. So it's time to make sure your voice is heard, time to dive in, time to have a little education moment. So head to the link in our episode description to start this awesome civics class. And like we said, get the first five days free by using our link shared there. Get rocking, get rolling, get learning. So do you need stress
1: relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or how about the best of all, honestly, some new incredible skincare? Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, being 100% clean with with strict safety standards. Plus, for every product sold, Prima removes twice as much plastic waste from the environment. And Prima gives 1% annually to nonprofit organizations and is a certified B Corp. So quite literally, all of the reasons why... We wanted to partner with Prima, bring them all to you. And of course, like buy their incredible products. And so Prima, as, as you might know by now, perhaps maybe has amazing doctor formulated, clinically validated, high-performance CBD products for the skin, body, and mind, and in just so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, body oils, and skincare special shout out to my favorite is the night magic night oil for your face, you know, both Vogue and I swear by it. So that's how you know, but lucky for us, you can also enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time, 15% off offer with the code GirlGov. So head to Prima.co and feel better every day. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, everyone. We are back with a very special episode. And I mean, like, you need to share this with all of your friends. We got so much tea, insane, just untold story of Afghanistan and our war there, our 20 year war there, which is just so al- also timely with everything going on. So I'm super excited about this episode. We're really planning on just getting into it. But Sam, do you want
0: to introduce our guest? I will, and I will save my absurd stories for another time, guys, because let me tell you, I've got some funny updates, but we will get right into this because. Our candidate this week and our guest is phenomenal, and I can't wait for you guys to hear from her, and it is Brittany Ramos, and she's running for Congress, hell yeah, for New York's 11th district, which, if you don't know, if you're not a numbers gal, guy, etc., Staten Island. And a little What's bit of Brooklyn. It? Did I say that right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just
1: associate Staten Island with Pete Davidson. That was like country. That was like- So why don't we just get into- <laughs> the interview <laughs> because again you guys i am not kidding when i say this is gonna actually blow your mind and we're just so grateful for Brittany ramos to come on and explain her story and everything surrounding this very timely topic and of course her incredible campaign that she's running so without further ado here's Brittany. We are so freaking excited to have you on the show today. And really, before we get going on all these topics and questions we have for you, we want to kind of know more about you, your background, your elevator speech, like, what's the deal?
2: Sure. So my name is Brittany ramos Barros. I use she pronouns, and I am running for Congress in New York 11, which is Staten Island in South Brooklyn. It is a purple swing district, and we currently have a Trump Republican as our representative, and we cannot have that any longer. And so, you know, I didn't plan to run originally. I'm an organizer. I've been working on social justice issues and movement at the national and state level in particular for several years worked with the Poor People's Campaign, a member of About Face, Veterans Against the War, and also the national co-director of that organization. And I was really focused on that work. And folks in the district came to me and said, we want you to run for Congress. And I genuinely laughed in their face and was like, that's hilarious you can't be serious I curse like a sailor I love burlesque like I I I can't like I'm not the person you know like I'll help you find the person I'm not the person and they were like all of that sounds great I don't know what the problem (laughs) is um... it does
1: sound great we need more of that we need more burlesque (laughs) in congress
2: I'm saying right and so yeah I you know my background I The reason I said yes is because when I thought about it, you know, I... I grew up in a conservative military family and they really instilled in me this love for the values that we're told America is supposed to be about, right? Service, justice, equality. but I'm also biracial. And looking around, even as a kid, I could see that the America that my white family was living in was not the same as the America that my black Puerto Rican family was living in. And also my parents are so hardworking and promoted this beautiful idea, right? Of if anyone works hard enough, they can make it. And yet I watched them work incredibly hard, work multiple jobs and families all around us, the same thing. And we were still struggling to make ends meet, struggling to keep our house, put food on the table. Our church friends were bringing us groceries so we could eat. And, you know, I knew something didn't add up. So I ended up going to school on an an army scholarship. And, you know, by the time I graduated, I became an army officer and I was already a platoon leader responsible for 40 lives. And. I deployed to the war in Afghanistan, and at that time, I believed that I was going to help the Afghan people, that I was going to go spread freedom and democracy and these things that we talk about. And yet, when I was there, it was devastating to see, as a person who really believed in that mission and idea, right, it was devastating to see how, obviously, there was real corruption in the command climate. You know, there were corporations that seemed to just be running the show. And we were obviously doing, yeah, so much more harm than good to the Afghan people. And so I came home and like a lot of vets, I really struggled to make sense of things and get on my feet. I was very hurt by that and confused, frankly, like, why are we doing this if we're not helping? And I think that that set the path for me to get involved in trying to make sense of what was going on with our political decision-making and our systems. And that led me to, you know, I I ended up doing economic and racial justice work in my first nonprofit job because I think I still had this unfulfilled, hunger to serve and so you know I had owned a business in throughout college and I thought I would go back to business when I came back and went into the reserves but I you know I think I still I was like I needed to do something that felt meaningful and I got that first non-profit job and just started learning so much about the way our economic and political systems work and here we are today.
1: Wow, <laughs> amazing story. I mean, I have like so many questions, but <laughs> I'm sure we'll get into everything today. But oh, wow, okay. So what was like what was your experience like overall with the military well, like in the Middle East? Like can you give us like a little bit more about that? the scholarship and like ultimately, that kind of just one thing led to another. Is that kind of how you ended up there?
0: Or?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, so when I, by the time I graduated college and commissioned as an army officer, it was 2000, I graduated in 2011 and I already had deployment orders when I graduated, because when you graduate, you get an assignment for where you're going after you commission, right? What what is your going to be your first army assignment? And my army assignment was to be a platoon leader for a platoon within a battalion that was already preparing to deploy. So I knew I was going to deploy. What's a platoon and what's a... Yeah, yeah, thank (laughs) you Such good question. No, great, yeah. Okay, so in the Army, right, you have, it's structured so that you can basically organize different sizes of groups of people, right? So a platoon is um, about 40 people usually. And they, and usually a platoon has a particular function. So for example... I was the platoon leader so in charge of a maintenance platoon, so we had mechanics we had subject matter experts truck drivers right like all of these. folks who were trained up to do different maintenance and mechanical things in order to support the broader size and i'm the other word I mentioned earlier was battalion so. You know, you have different building blocks of sizes of groups in the military. So a platoon is part of a company and that's part of a battalion. And so I was part of an engineer battalion. So our overarching kind of, you know, job area was in army engineers. And then my platoon were the maintenance platoon for those engineers because they have a lot of equipment.
0: That makes sense. I, I feel like those are the classic like words like I feel get thrown around and then I have no idea. And I'm like, yeah, yeah of like, course, a yeah. platoon. <laughs> yeah. like, totally. Like, meanwhile, I'm like, huh. Interesting. Yeah. Should Google. But yeah. OK, so that was like yeah. part of your experience getting there, getting into this part of like your career. But of course, you went to Afghanistan and then there's the coming mm-hmm. back and getting into, you know, your next stage of your career. But what was like that? Like, was there anything helping you in terms of transition from like being over there to being back? Were there veterans' resources? Does that like really feel like it exists? It's a little loaded. Yeah. That, but...
2: no, no, no. And like, I think like it's helpful too to to like share a little bit more to your question about my experience there to to kind of get into that. Which is that I also think I had a unique experience as a woman, as a woman officer in particular, because the culture in the military is that officers are supposed to be these kind of leaders who are responsible for planning and you're supposed to keep some distance from, your troops, because you're not supposed to be fraternizing or overly familiar, right? I'm a very casual person, I'm sure you can tell. So I always was just like out, and they're like, Ma'am, like, why are you in the motor pool right now? You know, and I'm just <laughs> like, hi, I want to see how you do your job, you know? And here I was like 22, bright eyed, like, I'm so ready to lead, you know, and like, yeah. I want to do a good job. And, and that's a super weird thing about the army, it's because Enlisted and officer ranks are completely separate. A lot of people don't know that. So you can't get promoted from being a sergeant into being an officer. That's not how that works. And a sergeant is an enlisted rank, just as an example. I was brand new, had no real experience, but I'm the boss of this group of 40 people who, many of whom have been in the army 15, 20 years and are very experienced, right? So that's just like a whole weird dynamic. And you know, and so and and it has its roots, you know, since we're talking about it has its roots in back in the day where there was this aristocracy, right, that was very delineated from, you know, the plebs, if you will, or the regular people, um, the rest of us, basically, right, the rest of us and working class people, right. And so so they wanted to keep the aristocracy in charge and in control of the kind of regular people. And so um, that's where that structure originally comes from. But anyway, so then when I deployed, I, you know, here I am all like, all right, we're going to do great things and help. And, you know, on an, on an individual basis and on a specific, you know, here and there, there were things that were good, right? Like people, there are a lot of people in the ranks who want to do good things. The problem is, is you have a military whose core purpose is to maximize violence, right? Like we talk about the military and all these euphemisms and we really focus on all the thank yous and the parades and all of that stuff. And I'm not, Mm, you know, I mean, if that's your thing, that's cool, but like, I think that the reality is that sometimes that, it, that becomes a distraction from what a, a military really is, which is yeah. a body that is designed to do as much violence as effectively and efficiently as possible. Like that's right. the purpose of a military. Right. And so when you're saying that you're going to take that kind of institution and then we're going to go like, you know, nation build, right? We're going to build yeah. democracy and we're going to build safety, right? Like that's a fundamental contradiction is like this idea that you can create safety in communities with violence yeah and so and then you also have these weird things like i had no idea about the the role that corporations play in all of this and when i was Mm -hmm. on the ground right so you remember i was a maintenance platoon leader i was repeatedly in these situations where they were like hello hi this vehicle is broken or deadlined, as they say in the military, meaning it's so broken that we can't use it in a mission. <laughs> um, <laughs> R.I.P. And right. Which means that we are not right. You're not doing missions, which means, you know, you're non-mission capable is what they call it in the army. And that is an urgent thing, right? Like, because if you're going to have troops there, you want them to be able to be doing their jobs. And so, And I would have a whole crew of mechanics who knew exactly what the problem was, had the parts to fix it and knew how to fix it. And we were legally not allowed to fix it because of corporate contracts that said corporate mechanics had to be the ones to fix it, which ensure that corporations are going to get their money. And, you know, that's just one example of the things I saw where I was like, this doesn't this is about this this group's profit not about our ability to actually do the mission effectively Mm -hmm. you know that
0: is Mm -hmm. crazy in so many dynamics in terms of like corporations and other ways they're involved like I really feel like this is something I I and I don't know about you Maddie too but like I feel like I know nothing about this like this is yeah totally new and I'm sure to our listeners as well like what else like what was like the level of corporate involvement where were you sort of like seeing that dynamic play out
2: yeah, well, and that's the other thing. I mean, most people don't know, right? Like, well, a lot of like, we, wars when... are
1: really like started and they happen because of all of the money behind it, and they tie yep. right back to that corporate money and the corporate stranglehold on our government as a whole. So, uh,
2: absolutely. And there's a there's a, a short book. It's an easy read uh, called "War Is a Racket." From World War I. one of the most decorated Marines yep. in U.S. history wrote it. Smedley Butler. So this is not some like, I hate America, right? Like this yeah, is like yeah. one of the most accomplished, you know, quote unquote, good soldier, right? That ever we've had. And he wrote a book on exactly the same dynamic even back then, right? And so, yeah, you know, I think it's an other- America thing, like
1: every country, like it's a huge industry.
2: It is, yeah. it is, but ours is the most, it is the most, most uh, yeah, exactly. Funded. So a lot of people don't know, <laughs> Right half of the military budget, right? The military budget, every time it comes around if people are like, we should you know, defund the military. People are like, but the troops, yeah. like how could you do that to the troops? And like half the military budget goes to corporations, half, almost half of our like $800 billion budget a yeah. year almost, like goes right. to corporations, not yeah. troops. In fact, we have almost 40,000 active duty military families on food stamps. That's how like they're getting paid peanuts while half that budget is going to corporations and those corporate contractors that are deployed. I would ask them when we were deployed, like, how much do y'all make to be here? How long have you been here? And they'd be like, oh, I've been here like five years. And I make like $250,000 a year plus benefits and stipends and stuff. And I was just like, what? And so, Um, (laughs) yeah, right. (laughs) Meanwhile, Joe Schmo over here, who's like getting blown up, shot at, right? Like that corporate contractor, you know, not that some of them weren't at risk, like, but- Like, you know, private so-and-so who signed up because they didn't have better job prospects because they're from a place where, right, and your best, our best federal job program is the military, almost our only federal job and, like, program to pay for your education is the military, right? So that guy, that guy who signed up because he was like, I need a good job and I want a way to pay for college and is now getting shot at and blown up, is making, like, poverty wages, Right. Oh my um, gosh. And then when they come home to your question about, you know, things, I think, you know, for me, it was it was a weird experience because I came home, I got extended twice. So By the time I came home, I was just on a plane, like, alone with no one I knew, which was weird because my unit had redeployed six months before me. And, you know, and so there are things, like, there's programs. But at that time, we were, they were having this problem where troops, because they were traumatized and, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on this podcast, but fucked up. (laughs) You know, they, like were coming home and beating their spouses yeah. or like killing their dogs and like just create you know just like getting DUIs because they were off the rails trying to cope right and right. so the army solution to that was to have trainings about res- about like mental health resiliency or something like that like the problem is <laughs> just that you oh need to god. be more resilient <laughs> oh my um, god
1: I kind of hate um, that word like it's yeah. just-
2: that also like, is just like the most right, old, it's school just like a, yeah, old school thinking. Yeah, it's a politically correct way of being like, just be a little tougher, right? Just like, suck it just up. up, yeah. 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 Um, like the problem is, is the are wimpy, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Right? And then they would do this thing where they would hold you that, for like a week. So I was just like wandering around Fort Bliss for like a week, like <laughs> with like nothing to do because that's their solution is like, you just need some time to decompress.
0: Which, Which I also think is good, right? Is like but interesting like, though. Is like okay. You just came back from like a super hardcore span of time, and you're doing things all the time, and then you're just gonna go like cold turkey and like not have anything to do. Like I feel like that's so right? much worse. Like you don't have anything to distract, anything to like integrate your brain into. Like what? Yeah, yeah. Like I
2: literally just didn't are know they what hiring to do myself. Yeah so I was like oh I'll go get my nails done like that might be nice so then I get my nails done and then I get yelled at too for still being in uniform and having my nails done and I was just like well what the fuck do you want me to do with myself (laughs) for like and also I just came back from Afghanistan maybe shut the fuck up like Like, literally so it's just it's just uh even my mom you know my mom uh, it was an army officer too. And okay. she told me if it makes one time she told, she was like, if it makes sense, the army doesn't do it. <laughs> <And> I mean... <laughs>
0: That is a okay. fantastic quote. Uh um, makes... sound bite for the ages.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely get that on a shirt, ASAP. But okay, we wanna dive into this like so much deeper. And obviously this is such a relevant topic right now. Honestly, we we booked you and then like the world went crazy with around all of this. So such yeah. perfect timing. But before we even do that, I wanna know more about your campaign too, and kind of like what you're running yeah. on and your
2: platform and the issues that you are prioritizing. Yeah, definitely. So New York 11 is a battleground district. But I also feel that it is a very misunderstood district. And a lot of folks, especially folks in New York, and even folks who live here, this was me for a long time, right? Like, made this assumption because we would have these Republicans getting elected and stuff that that it's just so conservative, right? When you talk to people, they're like, oh God, Staten Island, it's so Republican over there though, isn't it? And there's this tendency to believe that someone like me wouldn't have like a snowball's chance in hell, right? But fun facts about the district. So there are, you know, registered Democrats and progressives outnumber registered Republicans almost two to one almost Sorry. two to one in the district yes so then one might ask well then why do we keep ending up with republicans <laughs> that you'll have of all like right, right. Oh my God. so democrat turnout is very low and to give you an example right we elected a democrat in 2018 and i knocked doors for that person even though i had some critiques of them right but i knew that i was like we got to get the guy before him was was terrible. And so I was like, we gotta keep moving in the right direction at least, yeah, right? And so, totally. so I was like, all right, like, you know, put my volunteer shirt on and went and knocked all these doors. And what I heard at the door surprised me so much because you hear a couple things, like you expect, right? You brace yourself, especially when you're in the more like red polling areas of the, of Staten Island in particular, you expect to hear people just like, you know, curse you out and tell you to get off their porch or whatever. But what I actually heard was, why bother? I said, you know, do you vote? No, no, I don't. Why bother? I can't even tell the difference between the Democrat and the Republican running. Or that guy sounds nice, but someone like that can never win here, right? This self-fulfilling prophecy that like people believing that it's not possible means that people don't turn out. And you know, in hindsight, it makes sense. We've had a new representative almost every two years For a decade, you know, for over a decade. And, you know, I think even when we've elected Democrats, they've run on a strategy that prioritized flipping conservative swing voters, believing that that's what you have to do to win here. And if you're running a kind of traditional campaign, then yes, that probably is what you have to do. Right. But we think that we, you know, we are taking lessons from places like Georgia. Um, and Texas that we've seen, you know, the Stacey Abrams and yeah. others of the world say, no, actually, this isn't so much a conservative place. It is a voter suppressed place. And, you know, that two to one ratio that I was telling you in that 2018 election, I was saying I knocked doors for Democrat turnout was like a 11 percent rounding up 11 percent of registered Democrats turning out. Oh, right. Like that's shit. so And so that's, you know, I think that that's the thing we have to, that that's the thing we have to address in our campaigning. And, and, you know, people point out that Trump is popular here. And the scary thing is, is that there is an energized Trumpist base. And we need to be very real about that and very sober um, about what that means, right? Like that we Mm -hmm. cannot allow that. We can't sleep on that. Right. Right. But. Also, Bernie is very popular in our district. In fact, it's the only county here here where I live is the only county that Bernie won the primary in 2016 in New York City area. And so what you actually have additionally is people who feel hopeless, people who feel like they haven't had someone who was willing to be real and really fight for just everyday people outside of partisan nonsense that puts party drama over practical solutions and things that people need and that people are hungry you know to like to have someone that's focused on energizing our base right Mm -hmm. instead of trying to flip someone else's base so that's what we're doing and we are already knocking doors we are phone banking we have already raised over a quarter million in grassroots contributions we're not taking any corporate packs that's amazing yeah. And we are already endorsed by folks like brand new Congress move on way to lead Gloria Steinem, Mark Ruffalo, we're Hulk endorsed. I'll I always love to throw that in there. <laughs> oh, Hulk I see what you did there. <laughs> I love it. Um, but yeah, so you know, I mean, that's what we're doing. And I know that and we're also the fastest diversifying district in New York, I believe. And if we're not the, the, the fastest, you know, we're up there. And, you know, I just know that there is so, there's so many people out there that are hungry for a campaign like this. And I think the momentum we've already seen proves that.
1: Hundred percent. No, that's super exciting. I'm very excited to see what happens I can't
2: <laughs> vote my god 11 yes.
0: yeah. people if you are in this district yeah wake secrets, up <laughs> hello yeah. you're not dragging a friend to the polls like i don't know what I you're know. Doing. I don't, you know what i you
2: know <laughs> but also you know i mean confession i was a person who refused to register as a democrat for a really long time i didn't i was like i'm an independent i don't believe in either of these parties i don't feel like they're really fighting for us right but if someone had come to me even no one a single time knocked on my door yeah. or called me or even just dropped some lit at my door that was like, hey, like maybe you don't wanna register for a party, but maybe you care about what's happening in this community. And the, the reality is whether you like it or not, that you can't vote in the primary in New York, if you don't, if you're not a registered Democrat, so consider registering with a Democrat. If I really feel like I would have been an easy sell if one person, and that's just not been the strategy because people have yeah. been so focused on flipping people instead of yeah. energizing the folks who who are hungry to be a part of something real, you know? Totally.
1: No, that's so
0: true. That's a really good point. Misuse of data by other campaigns too. Well. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, that just yeah. kind of blows my mind. I feel like that's like, yeah. here's like literally the present it's wrapped, it's put on a silver platter. Here's what you kind of need to do. But I think it's awesome that you guys are taking advantage of this. You know, the strategy you have one yeah. and there's
2: like so much to come because of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, we I I told you about the two to one ratio and, you know, folks rebuttal to that just to get ahead of it will be like, yeah, but some of those people are just are actually conservatives and they're Democrats in name only. But again, to your point about use of data, like 90 percent, my friend, you're telling me 90 percent of registered Democrats are Democrats in name only. And also, if you believe that, then why aren't you out there registering every person you can find for the party? Right. And there are almost another 200,000, almost 200,000 people out there who are disengaged, who are potential voters, who we could potentially engage, right? And so that's what excites me about this campaign, too, is I was just like, you know, we need to organize our own community here. We have been left behind even a lot of New York City, like. Massive movement organizations or national or almost none of them have a base in Staten Island and there's a real stigma about it that I think New Yorkers should reflect upon because there's this real like oh Staten Island I'm not going over there or it's too oh my god like where the Trumpers are well if we're serious about our political project if we're serious about organizing Working class people and building working class power that is actually about the people right by and for the people, then that means we have to go into quintessential working class boroughs. Like Staten Island and we have to organize the people who are not the choir right, we have to reach beyond our bubbles and we have to be willing to meet people where they are and do the work. And it's not, it's not always just on social media. It's not, you know, we have to be willing to pound the pavement and have tough conversations with people, loving conversations with people that are about, you know, building our power so that we can take back our government for people who are actually ready to fight for us. Amazing.
1: That was so perfectly said. Well, thank you for laying all of that out. I mean, now we want to kind of transition back and get into our, I have a stupid question segment. And to start us off, can you kind of answer our first question, which is like, why did we go to Afghanistan? Like,
2: what's what happened there? All right. I need everyone to buckle up for a real (laughs) nerd, a real nerd rabbit hole here, because I want to do this at least surface level justice. So you may or you may not know that we were in a cold war with the USSR and other nations and at this time there was all of this real fear-mongering around oh my god the communists are going to take over the social I mean you literally had people being thrown in prison just for being communists right which i would argue like you can be against communism or socialism if you want but like how is it american values to say that because someone has a different political belief they should be imprisoned like that's backwards as fuck and so anyway so that was the era that we were in right 70s 8 coming into the 80s and afghanistan without going like way way back into history right was like working on trying to establish itself as a state, you know, find some kind of political stability. And there was political turmoil that was happening. And without getting way into the weeds, eventually a civil war broke out. And there was something called Mujahideen, which was really a loose network of different groups of people, right? It wasn't this, like, consolidated, organized force. It was, like, farmer who got activated during that civil war because of a repressive government before that, and then other factions because there was this, like, push to modernize. So there was this new class of, like, educated intellectuals who wanted to bring about progressive government. And so they brought about that government, and then they felt disappointed because there was a lot of repression, right? There were, like tens of thousands of people that were being disappeared by this Government, even though there were these other things like investments in education and other things that were happening, right? So now you you have this educated class who was like, wait a minute, this is not, what do we actually, like this is not actually enlightened. So that's how we ended up in, that's how it ended up in civil war. So was the like backlash to that repression, right? Okay. So the, the Mujahideen and other actors are, are like reaching out, are supposedly in conversation with the USSR and the United States trying to get support for their causes, right? As often happens in civil wars, like different factions try to get international support and the ussr there is so much evidence of the ussr saying no we th- it is only going to make the situation worse if we get involved we don't want to escalate things we don't want to Add to the violence, blah 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 blah. And the U.S. was also kind of like there were actors in the U.S. who were like, we should get involved. But then there was a lot of hesitancy too, right? Because things were precarious at this time with this Cold War. So eventually they do this thing where they're like, well, if you don't, we're negotiating with the Americans to the USSR, right? So the USSR is like, Ugh, we actually can't afford not to get involved if this is going to become a way for the Americans to leverage this against us. So then you have the USSR getting involved. They go in. They there's like a whole bunch of stuff now and then the U.S. gets sucked in and starts backing the Mujahideen because they're like, well, we can't let the USSR. So this is you'll hear the term proxy war, right, get thrown around. So that that's what this means is that now you have two international super superpowers who are embroiled in this civil war, not because they have some kind of like good faith investment in the cause of either side, but because of their own interests and their concern about someone else getting involved and them being left out, right? And so what that looked like also was that when the U.S. got involved and started backing certain factions of the, the more organized factions of the Mujahideen, they also pulled in China and Pakistan, and the U.S. started funneling funding also to Pakistan's security forces as another way to pull Pakistan into the mix and say, Pakistan, you have an interest in this, right? And because it's right across your border, a lot of this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, as wars do, this created massive displacements and a huge refugee population. So there were just dozens and dozens of refugee camps across Pakistan. So the United States uh, decided to start printing and distributing textbook. This is what we call a psychological operation. Back then it was called psychological warfare. I was actually a psychological operations officer in the army later on. And it is where, right, like it's essentially propaganda. So we printed textbooks that were, you know, like the kind of overt reason was we're helping with literacy. We're mm-hmm. teaching, we're educating people, right? We're helping with education. But the textbooks very intentionally promoted this militant, this idea of militant jihad against external invaders. And so we literally printed these textbooks. You can find there's a Twitter thread I shared that has pictures of the actual textbooks that we printed and distributed that have. Like they have, for example, they have like these bullets and pyramids and then practice reading lines like I, you know, bring jihad against the U- like the Russian invaders because of my allegiance to God things like that right, oh but it's, these are Americans printing this as propaganda to promote militancy against the USSR right so what you need to understand is the taliban is not the same as the mujahideen the taliban is the next generation of people that grew up in the refugee camps for the most part in pakistan and afghanistan impacted by this proxy war and civil war that happened who grew up on our propaganda that we distributed and actually the taliban to this day uses these textbooks and they cross out russian and they put american and so yeah i mean oh my gosh so that's so so it's, it's so important to understand, right? And this is not even counting, right? Our meddling, that is the propaganda component mm-hmm. of this where we promoted this idea that isn't, that it, right? Like jihad is a different, right? Like jihad is a concept that is not what we understand it as in, in Islam. And I'm not gonna try to speak to what it is because I'm not a practicing Muslim, right? So it's not my faith, it's not for me to speak on. But what I do know is that the, you know, kind of what we associate with extremism or terrorism is a notion that we promoted and literally raised people up in and we love to not talk about that right I and don't so know any of that that's yeah fucking crazy yeah I so, like the and chills. That, yeah and so and this is also we funneled weapons into the country we funneled funding for a lot of these networks right with that with, the, with then they were not the direct networks but they would give essentially right like birth to the next generation of networks based on that funding that became the taliban today and and so we you know fast forward 2001 right like there are, there are a couple different reasons why we said we went to Afghanistan, right? We were on the heels of incredible grief and kind of collective grief and trauma after, after 9-11, which was very real. And, and devastating, right? And people wanted vengeance and they wanted accountability and they wanted to make sure that it wouldn't, they wanted to feel safe, right? They wanted to feel like mm-hmm. it wouldn't happen again. And it's my opinion that bad faith actors like Rumsfeld, like, you know, a lot of different people knew that that was an opportunity to excuse an invasion of Afghanistan that we had been wanting to do for a really long time. And that is because of like uh, several things, geopolitical positioning, right we are still leveraging that that as a, as a form of proxy war resource expansion corporate right like this war profiteering something that we don't talk about enough i think is that opioid production poppy field farming wildly expanded during our occupation wow. and we love you know we love to kind of like rewrite history and be like oh well we had we also went in to stop the drug trafficking well that's interesting because that has Like, I don't even know what the number of times that it's multiplied is, but it's like exponential, right? From where it was when we first invaded and we had U.S. troops guarding, right? Like I could I could find five vets in my organization who could say yeah I was like one of the guys standing there with a gun guarding someone's poppy field being like why the fuck am I standing here guarding someone's poppy field and Mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know right like opioids heroin things like that come from poppies that's the original source material right so and you know and I haven't been able to dig up documentation for this but I know I was in rooms where it was explained to me that the mission was is like they couldn't stop the farmers from selling their poppies to the Taliban. And that was a huge way that the Taliban was getting funded. So instead we were gonna redirect Um, the sales to pharmaceutical companies so that it could be used for quote good purposes right and so then when you connect that back to the fact that you know the deaths the overdose crisis in my in my district is is just out of control I mean it's devastating and you look at veterans right and the ways that for years veterans just had it was just like oh you're sad here's drugs right like Mm -hmm. nonsensical to the point handing it out like candy right and then you have all these uh, veterans you know getting addicted and ODing on either the drugs that they were prescribed by the va or street drugs right especially as fentanyl is getting mixed in and Mm -hmm. all of these things that's so dangerous no wow like i no i didn't know any really of that that's
1: absolutely crazy i also had a question because i remember like as a kid always being explained that like the war was like had to do with oil is that also is it was that like yeah, of it, or was that just kind
2: of like a front yeah I mean there are so I think that that was more a narrative about Iraq oh, okay. um as one of the like more you know more developed oil rich uh countries but I also think there are pipelines that go through Afghanistan and when I say like territory and geopolitical positioning that's one of the things that I mean right is like it's not just like we want to be able to have a good you know, quote, good position to face off with other, our enemies, militaries. It's also things like that, right? It's like, it comes back to industry. And then it's, then this is also a a loop, right? Because the military is the largest consumer of oil in the world, single entity consumer and the US military. And in fact, the last time I checked, we were burning 10.3 million gallons of oil per day on average. Jesus. 10.3 million gallons of oil per day. On average, right? So now you have to have wars to protect your ability to collect mm-hmm. or pipeline oil yeah, places okay. to fuel your machine, and then you're right. And so now it's a it's it's a part of another vicious cycle. And who's getting rich? The still the corporate like the oil industry, right? And so yes, um, oh my god, I like who then pours money back into the pockets of Congress to make sure that they keep making decisions keep- that are good for their industry. 100% which is I mean, like naked oh. corruption right like that's oh. naked corruption and, and I mean even more like when you get you know I'm sorry I'm just no I know, please I'm like this is all in my effect. back here but I just it's just like maddening you know people yeah. like clutch their like I said I'm sorry I tweeted I was like I'm sorry I participated in the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and that's because obviously I didn't fucking help And if Mm -hmm. I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to risk killing people or dying, like it should be for a fucking worthwhile, just cause. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that shouldn't be too much to ask that if you're a troop who's willing to, right. And it's like, that's not anti-troop. That's fucking pro-troop to say is like, if you're going to send me to kill and die or you're going to send us to kill and die, like we should at least be able to trust that it's for a good reason. Good cause. Yeah. And a good reason is not because your donors need you know need yeah it's not for making money your greed and yeah
1: yeah I mean it's I mean Jesus it's crazy too like how each one of like these really destructive industries that we look at even on like a domestic level like how far they reach and how intertwined they are with each other Like from the pharmaceuticals to the oil to the military like industries that like make all of this money and they just probably like work in cahoots to like continue to make each other tons of money. Yeah. And at the cost of literal lives and it's fucking crazy.
2: Yeah. That's why I, I mean sometimes I'm you know, so people were like clutching their pearls that I said like, I'm sorry, they were just like, Oh my God, like this is not a leader response. And I'm like, actually, I think it really fucking is. It because is. I think we need people who are ready to like tell the truth. We can't, totally. ch- it's not enough to just end our occupation of Afghanistan, right. right? Like we have to make sure, like this has not been a mistake. This mm-hmm. has been our policy, right? This has been our policy and inten- a series of intentional poli- policy de- uh, decisions for decades that both mm-hmm. parties are deeply bought into. It is one of the most bipartisan yep things that exist. Almost 90% of Congress is receiving significant campaign contributions from the defense industry. And we actually can't change that policy and make sure that we have a, you know, that we actually have a policy of choosing life (laughs) instead of death. Um, if we're not willing to tell the truth about this. And this war, you know, another question I get so much is like Afghan women, like, but what about the women? Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, it's really fucked up. And like, that's why we also need to tell the whole truth about how we got here, right? And like, also, I mean, in Vietnam, they like there were critiques by anti-war troops because a lot of people don't know that but there were a lot of openly organizing doing civil disobedience while in uniform troops there were over like 500,000 troops that refused to fight because they didn't believe that the war was right you know and there's this narrative that a lot of us are taught of like the hippie who spat on the soldier and that's why we say thank you for your service and like i don't know maybe that's true i know researchers who have like tried to do research to find one verifiable case of that happening and they haven't been able to find it what the narrative that i think is interesting is is that there there was that there was gi resistance that they called there was hundreds of anti-war Papers and magazines being published by active duty troops in the barracks around the world, and in fact my tattoo the paperclip is one that a lot of about face people have and it's an it's an homage to anti to active duty our military organizers anti war organizers who said Mm -hmm. no, this is not right and we're not going to participate in it, and they would put paper clips on their uniforms as a way to signify that they were part of the underground resistance of active duty anti war organizers. Anyway, all of that to say, there's a long legacy of that. But when I think about, you know, today it's just like we, you know, we have to we don't just need a change in like, like some minor tinkering around the edges, right? Like we need a complete transformation totally. in the way that we think about foreign policy and approach foreign policy. And if we don't have that change, the planet is going to die. Like we're yeah. all going to go, right? Like the, the, it's you know, foreign
1: policy, domestic policy. It all comes back to this issue escalation. of, greed,
2: of yeah. greed and
1: corporate stranglehold. It's literally, that's all it is. That's the base and foundation and, The reason for all of our problems, every single one, is greed and corporate stranglehold. So that's why we need grassroots candidates like you. Um, A thousand percent.
0: But like thinking about this stranglehold too and the fact that it's bipartisan and people have been talking about bipartisan all week about oh my gosh there's actually something people are uniting on that both republicans and democrats had wanted us out of afghanistan that now they're both looking at Biden, being like what the hell did you do dude like what the fuck and i feel like that in and of itself like something especially in this day and age that there's like you know, people coming together on is like always a question. It's always a flag. What is the general consensus there? Like, why is there bipartisan support for this of leaving Afghanistan? Why is it like sort of this also you know, unifying sense of being like, what the fuck did we just do?
2: Yeah, well, I think because I think because like, I think that there's a lot of reasons for it. Like, I think that the, the reason that there's so much bipartisanship is because we've all like many of us for this is this was a series of intentional marketing campaigns right where we were kind of conditioned into this this plastic idea of patriotism this like knee jerk like you can never yeah. criticize anything about what's happening with the military or you mm-hmm. must hate america and the troops mm-hmm. right and i think that that really is antithetical to what patriotism should mean if we're going to talk about patriotism, right? And we don't, Mm -hmm. I think, and so I think what for a long time, what we've seen is, especially establishment members of the parties, it's safe. It's safe to have the dog and pony shows. It's safe to, right, to like have all of these like empty cheers and things. And it's not safe, to pass policy initiatives that even when they have nothing to do with being anti-trooper, anti-military, could be spun that way by your opponents, it's not safe to promote those things. The other thing is our economy, we have a war economy. And that is a very real thing. Like, So you have individual members of Congress who are like, yeah, I theoretically think that we shouldn't have 800 military bases around the world while the rest of the entire world combined has approximately 70 like that seems like not the best prioritization of our resources while people are dying because they can't afford insulin but you know but then it's yes. like when when it comes to pass the bill you know then it's like well are you willing to close the base in your district which is going to mean a loss of jobs
1: right
2: which is going to mean right? Are you willing to say we shouldn't have this corporate contract for more tanks because we have more fucking tanks than anyone could use? And even the military was like, no, thanks. We're good. Like we don't actually need more tanks. And Congress was like, but you're going to get more because the manufacturer has a plant in my district. And if we cut this contract, it means lost jobs. And then I'm going to lose my reelection. Right. And so or my Sunday. Um, right, right. And right. Or my campaign donations. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think like, you know, I think it's important to talk about the the a framework of what I call, you know, what a lot of people call not just me, but just just transition, which acknowledges right acknowledges that we have this war economy and that, you know, you know, one of the things I think about transformation is it's not just the absence of something, right? It's not just the absence of the mil- you know, military jobs and occupations and all of these things. It's also the presence of something, right? And so one easy example is we have the Army Corps of Engineers. My own district is has been trying to get a seawall to protect. We're still recovering from Sandy, which was like eight years ago, right? We still mm-hmm. literally have families trying to rebuild from that. We've gotten no investment in you know new, you know, infrastructure that can help us cope with the next hurricane. So one of the things folks were trying to get was to get the Army Corps of Engineers to build a seawall. It's been all this red tape. I don't, you know, it like gets clogged up in Congress and all of these things, but we should ask the question, right? Like why is our only Corps of Engineers one that is the Army, right? Yeah. Like. We need, we have bridges that are crumbling all over the place, our highway systems, we need public transportation investments, we need housing built, we need, right? Like we need all of these things. So one of the presences instead of just absences that we could have is to have federal job programs that are investing in things like this, right? That are things we need, that are things that would be a true service to our country. Yeah. Right. Yes. But that are and, and that serve as training programs, right? Like mm-hmm. sign up for the civil corps of engineers and like learn how to be an engineer and help us rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, help us build the seawalls, right? And like oh, you know and so I think that that's like one tangible example that folks can think about about what an alternative can look like and I think that that's I think that that's the that's what we you know we need a real shift Shift, in our resources and priorities towards things like that
1: 100% no that's very well said do you mind too, like explaining a little bit about like this withdrawal kind of what happened what what went wrong yeah
2: (laughs) yeah Well, you know, and I I, like been jumping around. And so earlier when we were talking about why did we go there, right? I mean, we talked about some of the reasons that I think we actually went there, right? Including our history dating back to the 1980s. But, you know, the way that it was sold to the American public was... Laura Bush going on the news and saying we're going to save Afghan women. This is a this is a feminist initiative, right? They're mm. oppressed under this horrible regime. And you know, when I deployed, I really believed that that's what we were that was still what we were doing, right? That's what we're doing. And we said, you know, but all of these different nuanced ways that we were saying that we were going there to help the Afghan people, right? That we were going to free the Afghan people from this you know this oppressive regime and we were going to bring democracy and the other way we sold it was for us for our safety right people wanted to get bin laden they wanted to make sure right we talked about this we wanted to feel safer um and address terrorism right extremism well so like let's talk about how that's held up right like The Afghan people, we almost, I started talking about Vietnam earlier because one of the, one of the things that troops, activity troops raised then was how fucked up it was that the measure of success in Vietnam was a body count. Like they would literally report out body counts as like a success measure. In Afghanistan, we see the opposite, which is that we didn't even count how many Afghan, in many cases, the U.S. military wasn't even keeping track of how many Afghans we were killing. And where we did, you know, I think, I forget the exact numbers, but one of the parts that I left out of my story was that I was almost, I was threatened with court-martial when I started speaking out about the wars. And for me speaking out, I was literally just sharing publicly available facts on Twitter, right? Like not sharing state secrets, just like I Googled this. I found it on our state department public report section. And hey, folks should know about this, right? Mm -hmm. Like. And one, like one example, right, of one of the things I was saying was folks think that the war had, had wound down, right? Like, oh, it's been declined. It's not really, like, we're still there, but it's not really. Um, I think it was something like in 2012, when I had deployed, we had the report said that we had killed just a little less than 5,000 Afghan civilians that year. And that's still, I mean, 5,000 people, like, mm-hmm. those are human lives, you know, of the people we supposedly...
1: They're we're told to that contact. we
2: went we went there to help. Right. Yeah. But then it was like in 2018, when I think I was doing these tweets, I looked at it. And for the year prior, we had killed almost 10,000 people, civilians, not people, not people as a whole. That's just yeah. civilians. Right. People oh that God. the United States government admitted were civilians, which is a big distinction, too. And so, you know, I think like when we think about we're going to help Afghans and when we're talking about Afghan women, like we have a real you Know there, it is there, there are real gender issues that play out, and also like women, like the issues that affect women are intersectional. And when you destabilize an entire country by bombing it for 20 years and yeah. you kill all of these people who are the civilians, we're supposedly like that, doesn't help women. In fact, women are disproportionately impacted by that, right? And so, and also, if we ever really cared about helping the Afghan people, then why the fuck would we leave without even Evacuating the people who saved the lives of US troops repeatedly who worked Mm -hmm. with us who are already vetted and then you have the President going on and I want to be very clear. I think that the Biden administration was right to withdraw the issue Mm -hmm. at hand here was not a matter of time. When I deployed in 2012, my mission was transition operations in preparation for withdrawal, because back then Obama, Biden had promised that we were leaving in 2014, no matter what. And they were very emphatic about that. Right. And so when I deployed 2012, 2013, it was part of a troop surge because they were like, we're going to leave. Well, we're going to do this right. Right. Blah, 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 blah. Great, But then we didn't. And so now here we are. Right. And so I know that it's not There's no reason. I just can't, I just don't think, I think that the Biden administration was right to withdraw. The issue here is not a lack of time or that more time, one that more time would have solved. It was, it is one that is about care in my, I don't know how else I keep trying to think. People are like, oh, don't be so mean to Biden. Like, I'm sure he cares. And I'm just like, well, how do you explain to me then why we had this massive military force there and couldn't evacuate? Yeah. And Even the people we were, the there people for we, so were we had already designated as trusted people. Why?
0: Yeah. Why?
2: I it, it makes no sense. And like, I don't know how how to make sense of that except for we have always at least from a policy perspective this is not about people as individuals biden as a as a person yeah. right but from a policy perspective our policy has been one that has treated afghan people as nothing more than pawns mm-hmm. right and that includes people who translated for us who yeah. saved our lives while we were there to supposedly help them and then who we just abandoned who are you know getting turned away at the airport you know, and then you have Biden going on the news saying, oh, well, the reason we couldn't is because Afghans didn't want to come. I'm sorry, sir. But yesterday I saw Afghans fall to their death off of airplanes because they were so desperate to leave the country. So I'm sorry, you're telling me that people didn't want to leave? Like, are you kidding me? Like, like, it's just the lying to our fate. Like, I just don't, you know, and so and so I think, in terms of public sentiment, I think that there's been a long history of lying that has been exposed through movement. I think yeah. you know organizations like About Face have for years been building momentum to tell the truth about mm-hmm. these wars that the that politicians would prefer to bury, and including confessing right, like the atrocities that people have participated in against civilians, against all of these things. And and I think right, the Afghanistan pay. I think whistleblowers have been viciously penalized by every administration, including the Obama administration, which was a Significant escalation—the first time we ever saw someone going after whistleblowers using the Espionage Act, even when people weren't, you know, exposing things to other, right? They weren't spying. They exposed that the president was boldface lying, right? Saying, "Oh, well, we're transitioning to drone warfare," for example. Obama went on the news and was doing all of this PR saying, well, we're withdrawing troops, but we're expanding our drone program because it's so targeted and precise, it's better. It cuts down on casualties and you had whistleblower and follow about face member, Daniel Hale, who is in prison today for doing this, who was, who was a part of the drone program and who smuggled the evidence to the Washington post that showed that nine out of 10 dr- people who were killed by drones were unintended targets. Mm-hmm. We're not people that we meant to kill yeah we have layered crises happening in our communities here we have we don't have people we have people who don't have basic access to education to healthcare to good jobs right to ho- housing that isn't making them sick or sometimes housing at all and we're spending trillions and trillions on a war that now, right, like through the Afghanistan papers that came out in 2019, right, we have evidence that senior officials were saying, oh, we're winning, here's, you know, we're doing great, we have a strategy, and that there was communication within that admitted that they knew that that wasn't true just lying more, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is a reckoning, or I guess I should say, I hope that this is a reckoning. Right. It's not It's not okay to do that much harm and just walk away yeah. um, and say, oops, our bad, actually, maybe that was a bad idea, but we're gonna, like, there needs to be real reparations to the Afghan people to, you know, there need to be full funded benefits to families that have been impacted by these wars. And I think that that includes black and brown and impoverished families across the United States who have not gotten funded and have been gaslit and, you know, about their own poverty and told that their poverty was a result of their own some kind of character flaw or failure while we have these systems that have you know have been clearly rigged in favor of corporations for you know to to unleash violence on communities overseas and so and I think and I think that that point about reparations is not just a moral one it is a moral one but i also think it's a strategic one i think yeah. when you sow you know in every other context people love to quote dr king right and about cycles of violence right violence begets violence well we have sowed a lot of violence for decades and if we want if we want to actually break those cycles of violence we have to invest differently um we have to invest in healing and we have to invest in life so
1: oh my gosh i'm just like you're amazing <laughs> i'm so
0: <laughs> shook i feel like i like have no words no words, but I do have one more question. And sure, I know yeah. this is the perfect spot to just round out you know, some backgrounds mm-hmm. and all of that good stuff. And you've mentioned about FACE a few times. Mm-hmm. Can you give our listeners the background on what about FACE is, how you're involved? I know it's very close to your heart and all of that. So I want to yeah. be able to give them the scoop.
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. About Face was originally founded, called under the name Iraq Veterans Against the War. And we were founded by vets who had just come back from the invasion of Iraq, and who were horrified by the difference between the way that the war was being sold to the American public and what they saw on the ground. And they were like, we have to tell this that we have to tell people and they were mentored by one of the Viet, you know the organizations that was founded in Vietnam and was active in active resistance to the war in Vietnam was a Vietnam vets against the war VVAW and they were kind of mentored by them and they told them you need to start your own thing for your own generation and so they did that's how we were founded that was way back you know closer to the Original, you know, two thousand three, two thousand four, and we are an, a community across, you know, na- across the country of all post nine eleven military veterans and and service members who are who tell, you know, who use our, who tell the truth about our experience and use our social capital as veterans to speak up in support of true, you know, fights for freedom and for justice. And, you know, I think that that's important when you think about examples like Colin Kaepernick, right? The way that w- that veterans and the flag were weaponized against him. And that was politicizing for me. That was a huge politic That's actually what prompted me to go looking. And that's how I found about face mm-hmm. was I was like, oh my God, like I am a vet, like, why I wrote this whole passionate Facebook post. I was like, here's the reasons why I think what Colin Kaepernick is doing is like actually very patriotic and blah blah blah. And I was shocked by how many people were replying to my post, like, You make some really good points that I hadn't thought about before. Thank you for writing this, but I still just can't support him because of the veterans. And that's and I was just like, wait, what I'm a veteran I'm a veteran. Like you're like, I I don't <laughs> You know, and so it, I just realized I was like, this is just this like empty knee jerk thing, right? That's yeah, just conditioned. Totally. It's just like a conditioned reaction. Totally. And, and like I realized in that moment, I had power as a vet to be to tell to speak out against that and then support of causes that actually do further the values that we say America believes in and that we're about, right? And so that's when I joined About Face. And then I just, like I said, I had never known that GI resistant or activity troops, I had never met anyone that was anti war. I had never heard of, you know, I never met an organizer not really and then I watched this documentary which I highly recommend called Sir No Sir and it documents the anti the actual like veteran and active duty military organizing and resistance to the Vietnam War and the role that that played in helping to end the Vietnam War and then I was like oh my god like I have just been like You know, making all these excuses all this time, like going through the motions because I was still in the reserves all this time. I knew when I came back from the war that I hadn't helped, that I wasn't, you know, but I was like, well, I owe this contract. I owe these years because I went to school on a scholarship. So I just have to do my best and keep my head down. And then I realized, you know what? I'm an officer. I'm a commissioned officer. I'm a leader in this army. I'm told, right, the army values are leadership, duty, respect, selfless service, integrity, right? Like, how can I say, how can I look my truth? in the face now that I know what I know and and say that I'm a leader with any kind of integrity if I'm not at least willing to tell the truth, right? If I'm just yeah. keeping my mouth shut and going through the motions, that doesn't have integrity. That's me covering my own ass. That's not selfless service. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I started, you know, I started speaking out and I was like, I'm not, I, you know, I don't need to be martyr myself for no reason, but I'm going to start, I'm going to keep telling the truth, whether I'm in uniform or not. And if troops, if if generals and officers can go up and stand in front of the media and stand in front of Congress and say, this is why we support the war, then I should be able to stand in my uniform also as an officer and say, this is why the war, this is what's happening in the war. And this is why it's not actually helping anyone, including, you know, and not helping us be safer. And it's not helping and, you know, and so About Face is an amazing, it's my, it's what I, you know, it's my community and it's an amazing uh, community of veterans who have been doing that work for a long time. And I I would say, you know, it's fair to say that, especially at our, at our kind of like numbers peak leading up to Obama's election in 20, in 2008, had a significant influence on, you know, in pushing him to position himself as the anti-war candidate in the Democratic uh, primary, and and really, do, you know, doing the movement building work on the ground to turn popular opinion against the war. And so, you know, I'm glad to see that that's the case now. And I think that that's the connection between people's movements and the way that we think about electoral politics, right, yes. is that it's not one or the other. It's, Uh, movement creates, changes the political conditions, right? Movement is about building power, using narrative, right? Building momentum that changes, that makes new things politically possible for elected officials. And then the other piece of that, right, is that if all that work hadn't been done, an unapologetically anti-war vet like me would never be able to be running now. And so now it's time for us to not just, right, like, we we've successfully ended the war, but now we have to change. We have to change the policy and we have to elect people to do that. That's yes. Yeah.
0: Which speaking God, of absolutely. electing people, AKA you, you, obviously <laughs> yeah, you have a like, website, you have like ways to donate, like give us and our listeners the scoop, like where can they find you? How can they support your campaign? If They have more questions. Like how do they get in touch?
2: Absolutely. So our social media handles on all our social media are Brit, B-R-I-T-T, number four, Congress. We technically do also have a TikTok now for our TikTokers, but we're, I know I've been wanting to get it off the ground for so long and I'm very (laughs) excited. Yeah, so we don't have much content yet, but you know, coming at ya. And our website is Brittany, spelled like my name, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, four, spelled out this time, F-O-R, Congress.org.
1: amazing Amazing. oh my gosh you are seriously so incredible can't wait to see you win can't wait to see you like run for president because like I need you as president (laughs) ASAP seriously so incredible thank you for sharing your story and all of this insane information that I didn't know I don't know about you Sam I don't know about our listeners but like absolutely fucking mind-blowing and I appreciate you you so much Thank you, Thank
2: you so much. Thank you so much. And I would be remiss not to make a plug that like, oh, you know, we talked a lot about the, 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 the ways that corporations keep political control, right? And yes. so neither party <laughs> are probably, you know, there are going to be individuals in both parties who are not particularly enthused to support our campaign, which yes. is why we need grassroots donations. And yes. so if you are able Donate, whatever you can do is so appreciated. It is so helpful. It is so critical to help a candidate like me get elected and to also help the more kind of, you know, official political people take a campaign like mine seriously. And so, you know if you're able to do that. And if you're not able to do that, sign up to volunteer on our website as well. There are so many ways you can volunteer, whether you're in our district or outside of our district and taking this seat back to maintain control of the Congress in 2022 yes. is going to be really critical. We can't let the, the Trumpists take the, because that's what the Republican yes. party unfortunately has been reduced to. I, I think at this point, we can't let them take control of the Congress that would be devastating for so so many, so many reasons.
1: reasons. Totally. <laughs> Amazing. Well, we got a, we got to swing flip district here on our hands for next year. We'll be Let's keeping do it. an eye on it for sure. And we'll be, we'll be right there along with you. So thank you again. Awesome.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Well, it is top stories time and to keep it timely, we are continuing to talk about Afghanistan this week. So as some of y'all might already know, the last American troops have exited Afghanistan. So this really represents the end of America's longest war. The war started around at the time of 9-11, which makes it almost 28 years old, which means it's like, it's younger than me, but like, it's still old. Like it's an adult, it can't quite drink yet but like it can also go to war like, quite literally. The exit included a drone killing that took place last week. This sparked, of course, a lot of outrage and honestly from many inside, so Americans, Afghans, the whole nine yards. The strike blew up a vehicle that contained multiple suicide bombers and were traveling from Afghanistan's Islamic State affiliate. This purpose of the strike was for the US to prevent suicide bombers from reaching more people three children were killed in the midst of this drone strike whom were inside the car with the suicide bombers the strike came two days before the u.s was set to conclude their evacuation activities so quite a way to exit the u.s central command states that they're aware of potential civilian casualties from the drone strike and say that the amount of civilian casualties was low considering send in your debates. send in your comments U.S. State Department started that they have a statement signed by 100 countries, along with NATO, that they have received assurances... Bullshit. ...from the Taliban that people with proper travel documents will be allowed to travel out of the country. Yeah, right? The Taliban also stated that they will allow regular travel once the U.S. troops have left the country. Why do I just, like, not believe this? You know, it's just those little things. It's like, you know, and there's just history repeats itself. It just, I feel like we're in a simulation, you know? But according to a senior U.S. official, the U.S. fired a Hellfire missile that caused an explosion.
1: Yes, so also General Frank McKenzie stated that there are in the low hundreds of Americans left in Afghanistan currently, and he believes these Americans will be able to leave the country. The State Department is working to get the last few people out of Afghanistan safely to America. Jake Sullivan, who is Biden's national security advisor, said Tuesday that the mission to get Americans out continues. It's just that it has shifted from a military mission to a more diplomatic mission. And he cited that they have considerable leverage over the Taliban to get Americans out. And Biden stated on Monday that military commanders favored ending the airlifts, not extending it, and that the U.S. is attempting to coordinate with international partners to hold the Taliban to their promise that they would allow Americans and others who want to evacuate the country, the ability to leave in the coming days. So that's kind of where we're at. A few days after this interview too with Brittany, we have officially technically ended this war in Afghanistan after 20 years, which is a great thing. Obviously there are a lot of conversations to be had about our approach, but we've been having this conversation for a while. We also had it today with Brittany, so you got the scoop there. But I think just another, I want lesson I at least want to hammer home to everyone, especially after this interview and how just eye-opening it was, is, is the importance of electing grassroots candidates like Brittany who are not going to be indebted to powerful corporate powers that really reach everywhere and are kind of the catalyst and foundation of all of our problems here. So... We are moving into a crucial midterm election season next year. We want to continue to push the fact that we need to donate to, volunteer for and vote for grassroots candidates again just like Brittany. So start to look for grassroots candidates in your area or candidates elsewhere like Brittany who you can help support and push past the finish line next year in November. So just something to keep keep your eye on and if you're like kind of like depressed after that interview with just the really dark shit that our country has done for the past 20 years. It's really it comes down to who we elect
0: and a solution is definitely
1: looking for and supporting and voting for those grassroots candidates. So
0: with all of that in mind, our and more than anything, this entire topic in mind, our amazing friends at Catalyst 20 put together a you guess it amazing document with action items that are ready for you to help refugees from Afghanistan during this time and even as options on how you can support these efforts in your own city so we are adding this link to all of these amazing resources in our episode description but definitely feel free to dm us with any other resources to add to this list we're happy to add them so that everyone has more and growing access And all of that good stuff. Additionally, this is just like a great moment while you're listening. You have the app open, whether it's Spotify, it's Apple, it's like another podcast app if you're choosing, you're liking, your preference. Yeah, this is a subscribe, rate, and review moment, or it's a follow. We're always down for a follow to Spotify. We love you and your tricky verbiage, you know, really keeping it interesting. So hit us with one of those, of course, if you have questions about anything else as well. DMs are open and ready for business. So like everyone, like go get yourself a bev, hang out, get through all these awesome action items and get after it. What she said. We'll see y'all next week. Toodles.